you know, I couldn't even go to come to the south side here for a while. Cause you, you just you just you get just so upset, so upset. But I got over that, and I thought, well, we got to focus on solutions now. We know what, we know what the problem is. We know what happened, right? Historically, now we got to focus on changing that. Chris Chang and Phillips, Edmonton's Historian Laureate, and this is Let's Find Out, a monthly podcast about the history of Edmonton, Alberta, or Amaskuchi Waskahigan, on Treaty 6 territory. Each episode, I take questions from curious Edmontonians about local history, and then we find out the answers together. This episode, The Land at Hand. Lauren Crazy Bull asks, what parallels can we see between broken treaties in Edmonton and modern-day gentrification? It was maybe one of the most loaded questions we've been asked, and definitely one of the most gigantic. But as we try to chip away at this story, I think you'll see the words broken treaties are not an exaggeration here, and I think you'll also see there is somewhere to go from here. It starts on a sunny autumn day, climbing up the hill of the Mount Pleasant Cemetery on the south side of Edmonton. You know, the one by Southgate Mall. There's a little group of us walking up this hill from the cemetery gates. Lauren, a Blackfoot and Dene artist and youth worker at iHuman Youth Society. Uh, iHuman offers arts-based programming for youth downtown who've been through a lot of trauma. Samantha Power and I, with the microphone and cameras, and Papa's Chase First Nations Chief Calvin Bruno. As we get to the top, we get a view of where the Papa's Chase Reserve was in the late 1800s, right here in what we now know as Edmonton. Yeah, I see, and then you get up here. You can see, well, if the trees weren't here, you'd be able to see quite a ways. Yeah. Start chatting here. Do, do you have the tobacco? Yes. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know any more formal way to present it than uh, we would be honored uh, by you helping <laughs> share the stories. Sure. Thank you. That's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. No, thank you for respecting protocol. You know, that's very, very important. Um, you know, it's important for our people, you know, especially with, uh, well, I'm not an elder, but elders especially. But um, uh, I'd be considered like a knowledge keeper. So knowledge keeper as well, sharing our our knowledge, our history. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, we did a, a previous episode where we were talking to... Um uh, uh, Jimmy O'Cheese. Oh yeah, yeah. Yep. And uh, we uh, forgot to give protocol until afterwards, mm-hmm. and so I, I have really had it stuck in my head. Definitely <laughs> do it right at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's best to do that at the beginning. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to start off with, um, maybe I'll just introduce why we're all here today, yep. and then um, Lauren, I'll let you kind of talk more about your thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, our podcast is called Let's Find Out. We hope. People answer questions about local history. They give us their question. We find out the answers together. Um, we thought, especially this year, with so many conversations happening about reconciliation and land um, in Edmonton, it was really important to do some story that would help us talk about Papa's Chase history. Um, so uh, basically, uh, I, I I told Lauren like give us anything to work with <laughs> because I knew. Um, She's done a really cool podcast called This is Blackfoot Territory, um, talking about Indigenous issues in history in Alberta before, and I knew you were 
curious about some of this um, history in Edmonton too. Um, so Lauren, would you mind telling us what you came up with for the question you wanted us to dig into? Yeah, so um, it's kind of a big question, um, but I was wondering if you saw any connection between um, the, the legacy of Broken Treaty uh, in this area and the gentrification of downtown and like the action of like revitalizing the downtown area mm -hmm. um, yeah okay yeah I, I think I can give you an answer about that I'm uh, Chief Calvin Bruno Chief of the Papa Chase First Nation here in Edmonton uh, been on council since 1999 uh, when we had our first uh, elections and uh, so our band was dormant for over 100 years and we, we, we uh, regrouped got back together with intent and purpose to um, you know, do what's necessary to get a just settlement for this unlawful surrender on the south side and to uh, provide good governance for the Papa Chase descendants. Uh, I live here in Edmonton, um, born and raised in Alberta uh, by Bonneville Coal Lake area, but I'm a direct descendant to Chief Papa Chase and I've been living in Edmonton most of my life and, uh, and of course leading this, uh, this uh, cause here for since 2011 when I took over as Chief. And uh, so, um, so you want me to get right to the question or uh, question? Yeah. I feel like it, it might. We might even back up for listeners because yeah. so many of them will only be vaguely familiar with the name Papa's Chase. Okay. Um, if you could tell us a bit about the history of the the, the, the band. band and the reserve. Yeah. Um, well, Papa's Chase and his brothers were, um, you know, like like many other First Nations people back then. They weren't. The, we didn't have the reserve system set up yet, so a lot of our people were nomadic, very. Uh, uh, territorial minded and we had big vast uh, ranges and territories we had uh, hunting grounds win win um, wintering grounds uh, summer grounds so we had vast ranges and territories and so Edmonton was part of that but also uh, you know right from Slave Lake all the way and every everywhere in between right to Edmonton here um, back in the 1850s and 60s uh, and into the 1870s, they fought with the Blackfoot and Sarsi in this area. Um, and, and they actually had this territory up until early, early 1800s when they were driven further south. And uh, because of the Treaty 7 and because of the wars and that, the Red Deer River was the new boundary. Uh, and so that, and that's why you have First Nations like Musquachese and north of Red Deer and uh, um, other bands like... Uh, Sun Child, No Chiefs, and, and were mainly Cree. And so um, so that's, and then of course, uh, Treaty 6 is Central Alberta and Saskatchewan. Um, so so the borders have changed a little bit over the, over the, over the years, over the centuries. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, Papa Chase took over as chief here. Uh, it was a chief by Lazarus Lap attack, but he died in 1861. And that's when it believe, it's believed that Papa Chase took over and he was recognized, acknowledged as chief in this area. And um, so, you know, they, they, they go through the 1860s into the 1870s. They're still fighting with the Blackfoot. They're coming from down south and to trade at Fort Edmonton here. And uh, so there's even battles that have been dis described in, in history books where people from Fort Edmonton are actually watching these battles. And, you know, and, and today it's uh, where Queen Elizabeth Park is at. In order to fight in these battles, they're right on the, the riverbank, kind of pretty, pretty much, and that's about 1870-71. And but the government of Canada they wanted to expand out west, and 
In order for them to do that, they had to sign treaties with the various First Nations. Up until early 1870s, they signed up to Treaty 5, which was puts, puts them into Manitoba area and southern Saskatchewan. So about 1874, they came to Saskatchewan area, into Cree territory, and said, we want to make a treaty with you. They came in 1876, um, signed treaties with the various First Nations in central Saskatchewan and Fort, Fort Carleton and Fort Pitt. And then in 1877, then they came out west here because they realized that there's more more uh, First Nations out here, uh, Cree nations. And um, so that's why they went to Musquatchies first, August 8, 1877. Then they came here to Fort Edmonton, August 21st. And that's when Papa Chase, uh, Chief Alexander, and Chief Alexis. And that's one thing that I don't know if people really understand that a lot of the First Nations today, the names they get from the chiefs that signed treaty back then. And that's one thing that I, I guess that uh, you know I just want to make clear. So you got Papa Chase, Enoch was Enoch Tommy Lapatak, Alexander Alexis, Alexis's brother was Paul, so I.E. Paul Band, um, Ermanskin was a chief out there. Um, his brother, um, he, they they had a reserve, but he his band took script, and a lot of them were absorbed into the other bands, and then it became eventually uh, it was Muddy Bull or, or Louis Bull. So that's where you get Louis Bull from today, Samson. Sorry, would you mind explaining what, what script is for listeners? Okay, so Métis script is, okay, it's, 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 it's not like treaty. Treaty is when they sign with First Nations people, made an agreement with them about land and various other promises. And, and uh, but script had to go, went back to 1870 when there was the first uh, Métis uprising at the Red River. And, and then it continued over here into Saskatchewan and Alberta. And... Uh, in 1885, when there was a second re the real rebellion, and what that was meant to do was to, um, I guess, uh, um, what's the word? Uh, uh, I, I guess uh, uh, accommodate or compensate the Métis for their land and uh, their Aboriginal rights to the land, and because that's what they're they're essentially fighting for. They want their land uh, recognized, their their territories, and their Aboriginal rights, but the government was refusing to do that. So they came up with this Métis script, and it paid back, you know, going back to 1870, and it paid back uh, those in 1885. And so they, the Métis script commission came out here in July 1885 and also in 1886. Uh, some members of the Papa Chase band took in 1885. So essentially what that did was when you signed this document, this Métis script, you're saying, well, I so-and-so come from this First Nation, this band, and I declare I'm no longer an Indian. And then by signing the script, I'm declaring that I'm Métis. And, and so they went from a full-blooded full, full treaty Indian to um, the derogatory term is back then is half-breed. In other words, you know, uh, Caucasian and First Nation, right? Mixed blood. And uh, so, um, so now they're, 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 they're half a native, <laughs> right? By, and essentially by signing this document. And, and according to the Indian Act, when Papa Chase and his band did that, so there's two-thirds of the band did that in 1886, uh, the Indian Act says that no Métis cannot live on reserve land. So they basically, you know, kicked themselves onto off the reserve kind of thing. But the thing is, they were misled. And and a lot of, and a big reason why they took uh, the script was because um, there was a lot of starvation going on. Going to the treaty, bringing back to the promises, and how it was broken in that. Well, the, the, the one of the promises that in time of a famine or pestilence, uh, the government was to provide relief, and they weren't doing that. 
there's estimates of about 3,000 First Nations people that starved out here. The Indian agents were letting food rot or they weren't giving out rations as, as, as necessary. So a lot of people starved. So people were desperate in those times. And so they saw this as a way out, way out of alleviating their, their poverty. And uh, uh, so, so they were starving. And so, you know, you know when uh, you know, they're getting offered, you know, $160 or $240 at the time was a lot of money. You know, you could do a few things with it today, but back then, that would be like amounting to like thousands of dollars, right? But, uh, but the thing was, treaty payments were every year, right? So they were, that was consistent every year, that's what they were getting. Whereas this was just a one-time payment. And uh, the, some of the clergy and all that, they were trying to persuade Papajas and his band not to, not to take this script, along with other, other First Nations that did, that did as well. And uh, so, <clears throat> um, so this script was uh, uh, basically uh, used against Papajas. And they, they weren't, it wasn't explained to them, you know, what they were, what they were doing. And uh, they were misled. And uh, the script speculators were even offering them, you know, 50 cents on the dollar. They were offering them like way less than what, like say instead of 240, they could only give them 100 bucks, right? And sometimes even less. That's uh, that's some, from some of the research. <clears throat> so so all this money is you know being changing hands, but they're getting the the speculators were there. It's, it's like that real estate today, you know. That's pretty much what 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 it is. is speculating. You're getting land or properties, and you're trying to resell it for a profit. That's exactly what these speculators were doing, because. Uh, Edmonton was, was, was looked at as a place for development. And that goes back to your question about gentrification and all that kind of stuff. Because when you look at uh, back what happened with Papa Chase, see, right after they, they signed treaty in 1877, Frank Oliver shows up in 1879 and into 1880. 1880, he's already using his newspaper against Papa Chase and the band and, and against uh, treaty rights and, and, and in favor of settlers' rights. And they sent in 1880. They they already sent a uh, petition to Ottawa, and again in 1883. But the, but this petition basically said that this land is needed for better men. Um, Indians are bad for business, so that goes along with this gentrification stuff, right? And and we want to remove them 20 miles away from here, uh, next to um, you know they're, 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 we don't want them so close to a business center. It's exactly what they call it, and and that's exactly what's happening with downtown, right? And, and so this is like, it's like replaying itself out again. And that's why we're standing here on the north border of the, the, the reserve. It actually was supposed to be up by University and White Ave. Because you look at old maps. We pulled out an old map surveyed in October of 1890 by John C. Nelson. You can see it on our website, and it's also on the Library and Archives of Canada website. The map sketches out a reserve much smaller than what the Papas Chase Band were originally promised, but still covering a huge square of modern-day Edmonton. My partner Finn made a clear plastic transparency of this map so he could lay it over top of the modern one. So I open up a map of Edmonton today on my tablet, lay the transparency on top, and we all look at the modern landmarks that give a sense of the scale of the reserve. First off, the map is titled Plan of the Subdivision into Sections of the Lands Reserved for the Band of Chief Papas Chase heretofore known as Indian Reserve Number 136 at the two hills near Edmonton. This hill, at the cemetery in Pleasant View, is one of those two hills. The other one, Chief Bruno explained, is still partly visible as that crest north of the White Mud Drive freeway, just a little south of here, right by the superstore. 
I'm fascinated by how well the range roads and township roads on this map match up to modern day streets in Edmonton. Like, 17th Street today matches up with the old range road on the eastern border of the reserve. Mill Creek runs through the northeast corner of the reserve, though it's called Stony Creek on this map. And the reserve stretches down all the way south into modern day Mill Woods. Chief Bruno tells us a story about one of the two hills, the one by Wetland Drive. They took that out um, to make way for uh, when they're building the white mud back in the 70s. We, okay, we definitely need to talk more about this hill thing, because <laughs> I think that's, that's a cool landmark too. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they used to have a lake there too. And this is where they lived because uh, one of the places, because uh, their enemies, the Blackfoot, were always coming to Fort Edmonton. So that was because it was high, at a high point, be able to see long distances, right? But this map only captures a short moment in time. The whole reason we're here is that the Papas Chase were pressured into surrendering this land. See, they, they took band members from Papas Chase. That's how they reduced the population. Because according to the treaty, it was one square mile for every family of five. So back then, the, the population was 249. And that would have put it close to 50 square miles. So they chopped, they took some people off there, created a separate list called the Edmonton Stragglers. And, and, and basically they were, hanging, they were living around the Fort Edmonton. But of course, that didn't fit into their, their plans, you know. And it went along with this, uh, these petitions that they didn't want them around the business center, which was, you know, around Fort Edmonton, downtown and all that. And their plans were basically to build Edmonton. So what they did was Enoch was created... They told Enoch Tommy Lapatak, and he was part of these Edmonton Stragglers group. They originally came from Papa Chase. They were separated. And that was to reduce the reserve size here, right, to 40 square miles. So that's how they did it. Then they removed these people to Fort Edmonton. 1883, they said, uh, we'll give you uh, a reserve five miles west of the fort and, we'll, and make Enoch Tommy Lapatak chief. So that's how they, they came about. Then later on, when Papa Chase and the band took script, so two-thirds of the band got kicked off like that. So there was 82 members, and they were, uh, the government says they, were, they willingly went to Enoch. We have uh, documents, letters that show otherwise, plus elders' uh, elders' uh, history that, you know, there's some elders that, that have the knowledge that said, no, they were forcibly removed. So they were pushed off to Enoch. So, and, and, and another reason about gentrification you're talking about, the CPR Railroad, they were building a line from Calgary to Edmonton, but they said if those Indians are there and you're still on a reserve, we're wanting to build it to the south edge of the reserve, which would be around Nisku. Because that's where, uh, when you look at the borders, um, so 51st Avenue on the north here, 17th, 17th uh, Street on the uh, east side, uh, 30th Avenue southwest, so north of Beaumont and Nisku this way. So you got Calgary Trail, right? And then on the, on the west side is 119th Street. So a good chunk of south side. And, and, um, but the thing is, the railroad said they were only going to build their line to the edge, southern edge of the reserve if there were still Papa Chase members on here. So, so the remaining 82, they forcibly removed to Enoch across the river. And so by 1887, there's nobody there. Completely removed everybody. And, and, but now looking at other land claims cases, they shouldn't have done that. that was, everything they did was illegal. The surrender was legal. They only got three people to agree to it. They, that's the majority consent. Plus two, if you have a smaller population, I've seen other claims like that where 
if the population was just reduced, they just reduced the land base. Because the treaty formula was one square mile for every family of five. And that's how they did it. They, they, they knocked off uh, a bunch of members, um, created this separate stragglers list. So they reduced the population. That's how they were able to reduce it to 40 square miles. It seems clear that Canada broke its treaty agreements with the Papas Chase First Nation. And that's just one of the many First Nations in this area. We're going to come back to this conversation with Chief Bruno because we want to skip ahead to the present. And we want to talk about what's happening in downtown Edmonton today and why. We are meeting back the next day and we are at the Century Park LRT station because we're about to meet our uh, voice of like what is behind um, what some might call gentrification, what others might call revitalization of a neighborhood. Um, and uh, our next guest, uh, because she's very busy and is running for city council, uh, this was the spot that we could meet, basically. <laughs> so that's why we're at the Century Park LRT station. Um, but Lauren, I thought it'd be interesting, uh, before she gets here, to talk about um, what we do know about the gentrification of downtown Edmonton. Um, uh, we tried to find uh, some studies that have been done on how the um, demographics of the neighborhood have been changing since the arena was built up, since the quarters redevelopment plan came around. And um, surprisingly, it's actually quite hard to find precise figures on how those demographics are changing in terms of income, in terms of like ethnic makeup of the area. Um, so uh, there is a study that was done in 2007 looking at um, some of the, the framing of the revitalization of the quarters area, um, a paper called Revanchism in the Canadian West. Um, I hope I'm saying that word right. I had never encountered it before. Um, I, I, what they seemed to mean by it was like vengeful gentrification. Um, the, the paper argued basically that um, a lot of the way that the city of Edmonton was um, inviting consultation over what the neighborhood should look like in the future um, implicitly uh, invited displacing the people who already lived there. Um, a lot of the advertising for the consultation said like, what would it take to picture you in this neighborhood? Um, and the you, they argued, was targeting people who didn't already live there implicitly. Um, but they didn't, that study, because it was published in 2007, which was before the arena and before a lot of the um, new developments have started coming up in the quarters, it didn't look at um, how the makeup of the actual people in the neighborhood has changed since then. What would you point to as what you see as um, evidence of gentrification taking place downtown? Um, I guess I walk downtown, I take the bus downtown to work, and then I walk through like a few blocks. But just in the past like few months, I guess, I've noticed a lot more, um, I guess people who are like well off what I perceive to be like well off uh, in the neighborhood. There was a coffee shop called Misawa. Uh, it was a black owned business and then it just, uh, a, a, new, a new business moved in there, but it's like, it feels very uh, kind of like what I would think of gentrification looking like in like a coffee shop. And from what I heard, people said it's like the most kid friendly place to get coffee so just like stuff like that new businesses moving in um, that don't like uh, 
they're not there to serve like who is there. So some of the best data we have on how downtown is changing right now is first-hand observations of businesses closing down and fancier ones moving in, or low-income residents in a building like the McDonald lofts being told by the new owners that everybody's being kicked out. I spoke to a University of Alberta researcher named Raynan Sowens, who tried to measure how Edmonton's downtown has been gentrifying, or not. He wrote to me and said that one of the reasons that it's tough to get good information on this topic is that the federal government stopped collecting it. The Harper government, Raynan told me, dropped the mandatory long-form census that included a lot of important data for researchers. Without this data, Raynan said, it could be quite challenging to do research as different groups such as lower or higher income individuals were underrepresented. This may recover as better data will be available from the new census as the Trudeau government reinstated the long form. This is richer info about who exactly is staying in different neighborhoods and houses, what their education levels are, etc. These provide better stats for gentrification. So, with these limits in mind, we started our next conversation with Sandy Pond. So, the reason why I thought Sandy would be interesting to talk to you for this episode is because, so we've learned about some of the history of um, the Papa Chase First Nation and treaties in Edmonton, um, and Lauren and I had talked about Okay, what, what's next? What can we actually answer for this gigantic, unanswerable question? Um, and I thought it'd be interesting to talk to someone who knows some of the insides and outs of what drives, pushes for revitalization of neighborhoods. Sandy and I had met last year at the Chinatown Conference, and Chinatown is an area in downtown Edmonton um, where lots of people have been advocating for revitalization, for making it um, more attractive for businesses, for making it a safer community. And um, Sandy had contributed to the new Chinatown strategy um, that has just come out, which I think is really interesting and um, offers some, some of the thinking behind what, what drives maybe changes to a neighborhood over time. Um, and Sandy is uh, running for city council in Ward 9 down here, down south, which is why we're meeting at the Century Park LRT station, because she's very busy and is campaigning. <laughs> and uh, this was the, the amount of time that we were able to, to match up with our schedule. So thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, but uh, Sandy, if you don't mind just offering, like, what, what got you involved in that uh, revitalization strategy? Okay. I want to make sure that we, you know, we have the right conversation. First of all, I have to recognize this Treaty 6 land and is, uh, uh, I have to say it properly, is the Ameskwachi Waska Hikin. Is that right? Uh, sometimes it's because it's a very long word and we have to recognize that and, and uh, say it properly. Um, the thing is that the, what I, why I got involved was that because of the Chinese community, we have over 100 years of history here. And believe it or not, a lot of people didn't realize that the indigenous culture and the Chinese culture have coexisted harmoniously in the same area. So over you look at the history, all of us together have had, have had experienced alienation, have had experienced poverty, um, and understanding the dynamics with the uh, changes inside the downtown core of Edmonton. If we don't focus on preserving culture uh, with existing structures that are there, the infrastructures, uh, very, before you know it, it, it will be all gone. So that was part of the conversation. Secondly is that we know that the infrastructure in that area is failing. So if you want to provide housing, 
for people in, of, of various culture or have set roots there for a long time. And that includes Ukrainians, Italians, Portuguese, and, and the other earlier groups that came as immigrants, along with, of course, our indigenous brothers and sisters. Um, you have to come up with a strategic plan that we can save these structures. We can uh, create these um, space where we can still have gatherings and meetings. So that's very significant. But we need that tax dollar. How can we justify to the city of Edmonton or even Alberta government that we need these infrastructures to be either improved, preserved, that's one of the things, uh, and increase capacity? Because believe it or not, Edmontonians are very... Um, diverse, but yet they're very inclusive and they're starting to learn more about the indigenous culture, the Chinese culture, and all the various early settlers in that area. So this is this is quite critical to preserve history, identity, but at the same time is that how can we provide the tax dollars to look after these places? So that's where the, the Chinatown Economic Development Task Force was formed. I know that the word gentrification has a very bad connotation because it, it's, it's almost, it, it, in the past it's always been like um, that business is going to come in and they're going to act in, in a greedy way and, and, and all that they think is about profit and they push the uh, people that are, the, the, the residents in the area out of the neighborhood and it's very disruptive. Um, I think that we have to change that term with more of a, a positive outlook. Um, think about economic development that we can provide market housing, such as from um, houses to condos to rental apartment. Uh, if we create more housing in the area, people can get work, right? They can have employment. Um, and the other thing is that they can be around the histories that they're, they, they're, 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 they're grew up with. Um, and you create affordability. Otherwise, you're going to have people displaced further and further out. So providing housing option is very important. But how can we bring in the businesses if we don't have enough people living in the area? So it's always like a catch-22. Um, it's, it's just one of those things that is it's almost like a two-path colliding or two-path merging. Let's, let's be more constructive that way. Lauren, you and I had a chance to read through some of the plan this morning. Um, do you want to share some of your thoughts on um, some of what was in it? Um, the number one pillar? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wanted to just like expand a little bit just on the, the phrase. Uh, the sentence is, the coexistence of numerous social agencies in the area which serve vulnerable populations from across the city creates unique sensitivities in Chinatown. So yeah, I work at iHuman. So oh, I work. Fantastic. Yeah, I work with uh, youth, um, mainly fantastic. indigenous youth. Fantastic. So yeah, I just kind of wanted to see how um, how they fit in, like the inner city youth fit into this plan. Mm -hmm. um, like what is what is their place in this plan? So with the plan, the word is economics, right? Mm -hmm. If I can bring in businesses. It creates viability, plus the fact that when they see the iHuman project being so successful, the youth in that group can not only seek employment, but also all the creative work that you've done. Now you bring in an audience, but we need foot traffic. We need people to come nearby and say, hey, there's the iHuman Center. 
this is where the, the, the young artists of Edmonton will be. And so you need to bring that tension. And if, if, it's, if it's done via development or done via um, businesses, to create business, to bring the, the, the critical mass in, to, you need an audience. So that's what we're here to try to do. And um, uh, I think that would help with various groups in the area too. Understanding the significance of all these social agencies that already pre-exist in the neighborhood, that is something that we have to deal with. Sandy talked about the concentration of organizations like women's shelters and drop-in centers downtown. Unlike any city, Edmonton has over 55 social agencies in that five, six block radius. It's very heavy concentration. You don't see that in other cities. Why is it in that downtown core, in that few block of radius, where, where the Chinese and the indigenous people have been there for a long time? Why is, why is it all there? Why are these social agencies has to be there? Is it that the government is not providing proper services and, and uh, uh, to, to diminish the, the problems, society problems? Or is it just that that is the spot that typically they're just going to plop these uh, social services in, right? So that itself is, could be a kind of a uh, social injustice for the cultural groups. And we have to deal with that. We did some digging after this, and I don't know if it's accurate to say Edmonton is unique in that concentration of services downtown. Uh, studies done by the city of Toronto and the city of Kingston, for example, show the same pattern in their cities. It's definitely something Sandy would like to change, though. Sometimes people don't want to talk about it, but that is not the way to deal with things. There is a problem, let's come up with a solution. So is it going to be more of a, a better centralized delivered services to the people in that area? Uh, we're not looking for uh, handouts from the governments and from the private sector. Is that we need to work a work with come up with solutions to help each other because you can have high concentration of poverty and homelessness in that area because if you see so much transient in the neighborhood guess what the small businesses is not going to come and attempt to open in that area or someone's going to no no house no house builder or developer will want to come in and build um, more housing to, to for the for the people in the neighborhood so we need to deal with the social, the social issues. We chatted for a bit more, and then Sandy had to head out. So we asked Lauren what she thought of everything she'd learned so far. Yeah, uh, it was interesting. I always like am interested to hear the language of uh, people who are building these plans or these ideas, and just how they see our community downtown um, in the inner city learning what the differences are is like really important to like so that we're not just talking about what we know but like learning that language and learning like the processes that are like already happening or that might be put into place as well so so we set out with this question um, are there parallels that we can see between um, histories of broken treaties in Edmonton and modern-day processes of gentrification. Um, we just got a chance to nibble at it, really. Um, how do you feel about how much we were able to answer your question, Laura? Um, I, I was pretty um, 
like happy to learn everything that I did, uh, especially about the the history of the Papi Chase First Nation. Um, and I do think what Chief Calvin Bruno said about back when Edmonton and Old Strathcona was being developed, like the the business area being impacted by Indigenous people or who they call stragglers, I think he said, in that area. And I think that really is a big parallel with like the downtown area, with how the businesses interact with uh, Indigenous people downtown. Um, and it might, it might not be like explicitly said like that now, um, in this time we're in right now, but it's still kind of like something that I see. So just like seeing that, that parallel um, with just that language, I think is like, was like a big thing. Um, and then also learning different like languages of different, um, from different sides of what is happening in Edmonton's revitalization or gentrification, I think is, it's an important thing to keep in mind as like as I'm doing this work at least with the youth downtown um yeah thanks Lauren thank you this is a complicated conversation one that lots of us as settlers can find threatening if we're living on land that indigenous people were pushed off where do we fit in so we wanted to circle back to something that Chief Bruno said about where to go from here this conversation gets um, scary for settlers is yep. <laughs> people get anxious about thinking like does this mean that we're all going to be kicked off of this land no 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 um, I, I like to give the example when I, when I speak about Musqueam First Nation in uh, um, in, in, in North Vancouver uh, there's but theirs was a separate situation theirs was uh, um, uh, a, a lease agreement that they had with the city of Vancouver they signed it in 1908 it was a $1 a year on its lease, terrible deal, right? And 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 so over the all for a hundred years, they've been building on the on the lands. Lands been transacted, homes and everything like that. And the city's been create, getting um, the, the taxes off off that for a hundred years. So <clears throat> early two thousands, about two thousand one, the band woke up and said, you know what? This is a terrible deal. You know. Hundred years, we're only making ninety nine dollars, <laughs> right? And the province and, and the and Vancouver is just like, you know, making billions of dollars off their land, you know, off the taxes. So this is a terrible deal. So they they, they sent a, a notice to uh, the Vancouver City Council and said, "We're taking our land back, and you can't do nothing about it." And so of course they went running to the lawyers, and lawyers said, "Yeah, they got us. You know, it's it's a contract. You and, you, and unless you renew, renew the contract, which they don't want to do." Uh, you got to give the land back. You got to hand it back to them. So that's what happened. So the contract was up in 2007. They got their land back. But of course, in the meantime, the landowners, like you're talking about, landowners and homeowners, they're all freaking out, saying, "Oh, these natives, these Indians, they're gonna kick us off our land and move me out of my multi-million-dollar mansion and and uh, you know live in my house, you know, and throw me out on the street, kind of thing, right?" So the band said, "No, we're not gonna do that. We're gonna." You know, we're, we're taking over our lands. So we're going to be your landlord, not Vancouver, right? <laughs> You're going to pay us now, right? And so uh, they're like, oh, okay, I can stay, right? You know, so they're a little more at ease now. And, and and that's been brought up here, you know, whenever there was news stories in the past about our claim. They go to Mill Woods and they stick a microphone in someone's face. Oh, what do you think about this band? Why do you get their land? Like, 
oh, I have to leave, you know. You know, they get all freaked out, right? And so there's, there's a little bit of fear-mongering, eh? So, yeah, so, so, so things are changing, um, you know, and that's what we want to do is we want to reestablish ourselves in the city of Edmonton, you know, it's, uh, and, and just want to make it clear, and I'm sure people have these questions or will have these questions. It's not about a big land grab. You know, sure, there's, there, there's going to be millions of dollars involved, but for me, it's about rebuilding a nation. I've been doing this since 99, you know, and I've been chief since 2011. So I've been in this for a long haul. I'm here to see our nation restored. That's, that's what this is all about. It's not, you know, because that, that's what people thought it was, you know, oh, you're just in it for the money. There is no money. I don't get paid a salary. You know, I'm trying to create a salary. Um, you know, we're going after funding for uh, employment and training center, which I, which I incorporated. And once I get that, then I'll be able to get a, get a salary. But till then, you know, stuff like, uh, you know, I speak in public, consultation, all that, that's where, that's where my money comes from. The Musqueam First Nations land lease agreements in the Vancouver area are a really interesting case study in what can happen next. I couldn't find the specific example that Chief Bruno was talking about with the $1 per year leases. And not everybody's even happy with the Musqueam Band's request to raise those rents to modern-day land values. But the big picture I got here was that it is possible. Possible to find a place for all of us on this land. Thanks for listening to Let's Find Out. This podcast is produced by Samantha Power and me, Chris Chang Phillips. We want your questions about Edmonton history? Drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. And if you have a friend who'd like the show, tell them how they can listen. You can find all of our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, and letsfindoutpodcast.com. If you want to geek out more about Edmonton history, I post between episodes on the Facebook page for Edmonton's Historian Laureate. Also, we have a live event coming up on October 15th, The Sign of the Fairy. A curious Edmontonian is wondering if he's found the remains of John Walter's ferry. So we're doing a live history walk through the River Valley to investigate, but that event is already sold out. I'd barely posted it to Eventbrite, and then all the tickets were gone. So sorry to tease you, but you'll get to hear the recording at the end of October. And here's an event that might be sold out, but maybe you could squeeze in. The Alberta Podcast Network launch event is Wednesday, September 27th at 7 p.m. at CKUA. If you get bounced at the door, CKUA is streaming it on Facebook Live. Okay, thank you, Tim. Thank you to Lauren Crazybull, Chief Calvin Bruno, and Sandy Pond. To Keisha Supernant, Rainan Sowens, Karen Wall, and Matt Dance for research help. Thanks to the Edmonton Historical Board and the Edmonton Heritage Council for supporting this podcast. To everyone who's been supporting it, especially Finn. Original music for this podcast is by the thoroughly lovely human being, Doug Hoyer. Artwork for our logo by Andrea Hergy at Mount Pioneer Design. All right, that's it for this month. Until next time, keep your questions coming.